So thank you for being with us on one of Suraj's important conversations. Today, my guest is the well-known author, intellectual kshatriya, dharmic warrior, and many, many things, Rajiv Malhotra. Today, what I'm going to discuss is his latest book, which is the a book about artificial intelligence and the future of power. Now, artificial intelligence, of course, is the flavor of the season. Everybody thinks they know something about it. But unfortunately, I don't think they understand the implications. They know it's the future. They know there are a lot of jobs there. They know that it's a, a lot of uh, companies are trying to dominate the field, but they don't really understand the full implications. And that is why you ought to read this book. And I'm going to quiz um, uh, Rajiv. Uh, if I may call you by your first name, sir. Yes, uh, I, that's why I'm going to quiz Rajiv on uh, what he has written in the book. So let me start with a very generic question. AI seems to be the area where science fiction meets reality. And uh, the progress made in this field makes it sound as though some of the old, um, uh, what we thought was only fiction, like, you know, Terminator, Minority Report, Frankenstein, everything, all these seem to be potential uh, of AI in future. So how do you see, why do you see AI as such a uh, subject which needs not just a full book, but a full treatment that goes beyond the obvious like jobs and power? Well, thank you for uh, inviting me to this uh, important uh, Swarajya forum that you have. Uh, I've uh, known you and Swarajya for a long time, appreciate uh, the, what they do. Uh, and I'm very grateful to you to uh, probe me because I want people to probe me, uh, it, including agreeing, disagreeing, doesn't matter. But I really want to be probed because the more they probe, the more I can bring out. So to your question, you know, AI was my topic when I was a grad student in computer science 50 years ago. But at that time, the kind of things that are happening today would look like science fiction, even for people like us. We were trying to write programs to recognize basic handwriting or, uh, you know, chess and all that, which is considered very simple today. Uh, now, what has happened is it has, it has surprised even the insiders as to its success. The, which is a, a whole topic. Someday I want to get into what is the metaphysical reason that AI is so successful beyond the expectations. The ability for machines to learn how to hack the human mind, how to replicate human intelligence without machines being conscious. So the machine is not conscious, yet a conscious human being's intelligence can be hacked, can be replicated, can even be superseded, can be augmented is a very, very big deal. So this, the reason this uh, is a large movement, and I believe that this movement begins this decade, the decade of the 2020s uh, uh, with this book is as important for me uh, in my work as the book Breaking India a decade ago, because that book defined a lot of the discourse as you yourself noted in some of your interviews with me uh, the past decade. Uh, and hundreds of people came and they built a whole lot of uh, Breaking India type scenarios and make, became famous icons with their own channels and all that. I believe that uh, now the time is for AI to have that kind of a role. Uh, the difference is that AI is not so obvious to the non-technical person. And my job in this book is to make it accessible. 
I'm bringing right. the complexities of AI to simple ordinary, to any ordinary uh, person uh, without a technical background. And I'm taking it beyond, as you correctly said, beyond this issue of jobs into the psychology, the spiritual issues, the geopolitical issues, the issues that are right now today with Twitter doing whatever they're doing. So right. this is the relevance. I anticipated this. I started working on this five years ago and I kept it very quiet because I didn't want it to leak out and then people taking pot shots without even having read it. So I've kept this under wraps with a few exceptions. Uh, right. And, and uh, the, the reason I, I, I think this book is so important and I put such a large commitment of time effort into it and so much I'm doing now to mobilize uh, opinion on it and, and uh, make it popular and make it uh, spread awareness. The reason is I feel that uh, the world needs, the world is in trouble between the haves and have nots, those who know the AI, the Twitters of the world, the Zuckerbergs, the Googles of the world, uh, these, the American digital giants as I call them of the world and a few Indian intermediaries who are sort of like the zamindars in those old days. And be, between them, with the knowledge, with the capital, with the wherewithal versus on the other side, the average man on the street who doesn't quite understand it. And I'm trying to bridge this gap. I'm trying to be a voice for the underdog, uh, you know, a voice for those who are not being represented at the table when they're discussing all these policy implications. Uh, right. I'm trying to bridge the gap and I'm trying to wake up uh, the thought leaders like yourself, the, like many others that, hey, guys, help me, join me and we got to do something about it. That's why uh, I wrote this book. Right. Um, Rajiv, you began on a not-so-pessimistic uh, note. I mean, I'll read one line from that. You said, yes, there is going to be disruption. I quote, we are entering an epoch of disequilibrium in which a period of chaos is inevitable. Eventually, however, a new equilibrium will be established and a new kind of world will emerge. This sounds a little hopeful, but as I went through the book chapter after chapter, suddenly I found that there was much greater pessimism because of the way these technologies are being used to hack the human mind, as you said some time ago, and also how grossly underprepared or even unprepared India is and how also leave aside Indians, I would say that uh, you use a very important phrase called moronization. Yes. That is what AI has the potential to make morons out of all of us. And so all that we will be, say, we, as long as we get, uh, you know, uh, material pleasures and uh, satisfaction in some way, uh, we are happy with uh, AI or some big tech guys owning our minds, hacking our minds. So uh, I, wh why do you see this as a more pessimistic thing, whereas many people uh, saying AI has got a, a potential to revenue, revolutionize lots of fields, including healthcare, rural healthcare, digitization, uh, various things. So this is a wonderful question. Uh, there, is, uh, there is optimism and pessimism, as there is when a new technology comes, which changes the power game. You see, when the industrial revolution came, of course, uh, you know, one could say that uh, uh, it brought so much uh, technology, so much uh, manufacturing capability, the world economy expanded. Uh, so many things happened because of industry, which were not going to be possible without industry. But then I would also tell you that the industrial revolution is what made Britain a colonial power and India became a colony. So the colonization of the world into haves and have nots, colonizers and colonized, is also a product of the of the same thing. So while the industrial revolution brought so many goodies, it was not equal. 
it also exacerbated inequalities between those who had it and those who didn't have it. So this is true of any new technological breakthrough. So AI will create many industries, cure diseases, improve agriculture, all sorts of things will happen. But not everybody has the capacity to own it. Uh, so far, it's, it requires big investments. And if you look at the AI scenarios in India, it's the big corporates. All the reports in India on AI are written by the McKinsey's and the Pricewaterhouse type people who are, whose clients are big corporate people. And they're writing from the corporate point of view that it will be good for their investments and all that. But none of those guys has gone to the villages and talked, looked at the point of view of the, of the you know, panchayat or the, the, the real Tesildar or some district level people. None of them have looked at the point of view of what will happen to the migrant workers. None of them have looked at the point of view of, uh, you know, the social disruption this will cause, which I hope we'll get into, because that's the, this whole Twitter debate, which I've anticipated for several years and try to warn people in the Indian government also that this is going to become a very serious matter. And I'm, I, and I'm glad that, well, in a sense, it, it's good that it has happened so that at least we know they've shown their hand. They've shown their hand. So while AI will do a lot of good things, it will also disrupt equilibriums. When there's an equilibrium, there are, there are un, unequal forces, but they're kind of held in balance. They figured out, they've negotiated how they relate to each other. Then a new kind of power comes and, and some people can grab it and some people and they can take advantage of it and move up the ladder, so to speak. Others cannot do it. Either they don't have the wherewithal, they don't even understand what the heck it is. They don't have the capital. They don't have the technology know-how and all that. So the people who are not able to jump on the bandwagon and get ahead uh, are going to be left further behind. So I worry about the bottom 500 million Indians uh, who are already marginally ex uh, educated at best, uh, underemployed, uh, because some of them have, don't have jobs, some have got sort of artificial made, made, made up jobs, or their jobs are inadequate, they need a lot of subsidies to make their ends meet. I feel for these, the bottom 50% of India, and imagine what happens when this kind of bot large number of people are out of work, out of uh, their uh, sense of security, their emotional sense of security. Imagine what it does for breaking India. And this is what I'm calling breaking India 2.0. So I, right. I feel that India is more vulnerable than any other country because of its scale, because of the number of the overpopulation, the number of uneducated people and how psychologically in awe we are of the Americans and the West. And so, you know, we measure our success based on how many likes I got, how many retweets and views I got, and what uh, Twitter Devta thinks of me, what Google Devta thinks of me. You know, Facebook Devta likes me. They blocked my opponent. They didn't block me. I know search engine opti optimization, which is sort of like Agama for the Devta to worship the Devta. You need some Agama. So our people are so mesmerized by the power of this AI-based uh, big data system this digital economy that is all controlled from outside India. Okay, we, that, that this means we are kind of like a colony. We're becoming kind of like a colony. And it is not just India, you know, Pakistan is becoming a colony of China. China has yes, got uh, tens of thousands of surveillance cameras for security. They call it for security, but they have uh, uh, facial recognition. They keep track of the generals. They keep track of the private lives, personal lives, who's doing what, all the scandals. They can blackmail these people. So they're, they're like the East India Company keeping tabs on Rajas, Indian Rajas, uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and deciding who will be, uh, be in power, who will be kicked out. 
uh, and similarly, China has uh, co-opted, I would say, two-thirds of African countries. They have already co-opted. They go there and buy mining for all the rare minerals, you know, like lithium is very rare, needed for electric cars. So the oil, whatever minerals they can get, natural resources, wood products, they can get all that. And in exchange for this, uh, they're giving them so-called aid, uh, surveillance, and actually they're capturing their big data. They're capturing DNA and they're capturing uh, human kind of uh, metrics of all the people. Uh, so this recolonization of the world, both by the Americans and by the Chinese, is happening. And mm. the people who are being colonized don't know about it. Our leaders don't know about it. A few people do, the military people do, but they, they are also to, going to talk uh, to a certain extent. I think the political... Uh, governance type people in India have start, suddenly started understanding it in the last six months. I've been right, uh, researching this for five years, giving private uh, discussions, PowerPoints, in private, in confidence, not getting much traction. But once China is at the door, banging at our door, and the American military people tell the Indian military people, this is all AI, robotics, drones, uh, new you know, facial recognition and Indian military people understand it. They get it like that. So now the, 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 the people from uh, uh, PMO's office down to science ministry, down to HRD, down to every Tom, Dick and Harry is running around saying AI, AI, AI. But it is, we are trying to catch up a 10 year lag we have behind China. So it's right. pretty serious stuff. Yeah. So um, uh, let me look at the way you divided the book. You uh, broadly divided it into five battlegrounds. Two, we have been familiar, reasonably familiar with. One is the impact on economic development and jobs, and also the shift in geopolitical power as a result of uh, AI uh, conquest by some countries. The last three are less known and even more problematic because it is about hacking the mind and destroying the dharmic system. Okay, so you have the psychological control of desires and agency which AI can conceivably threaten. Then there is the battle for metaphysics of the self and its ethics. And then, of course, it's the broader question which combines the previous four and is how, how does it impact India, which is about India's future. So the, uh, if we can quickly go through the first two things, uh, the jobs thing is particularly interesting to me because I wrote a book two years ago on the jobs crisis in India. And an important segment of the book said how technology is now the driver of growth and it is no longer human labor, which means that you need less and less human labor to generate GDP or growth. And I didn't specifically talk about uh, artificial intelligence, but I talked about many technologies, including artificial intelligence. So uh, why do you think it is such a huge threat to development and jobs? Yeah, you see, if you look at the statistics in India, uh, for every 10% growth in GDP, there is only 1% growth in employment, right. which means that the GDP is not growing and uh, bringing jobs along with it. It's, right. as you just said, capital intensive, technology intensive, which means that a few rich will become richer, big companies who have the wherewithal. And this FDI, FDI is going not to create the jobs, but FDI is going to create a Sensex economy. I call it the Sensex India. Sensex India is becoming big and rich and powerful. But, you know, Sensex India employs less than 10% of the Indian workforce. Most people don't understand. They're looking at Sensex India benchmarks and they're saying, oh, India is shining and all that. The point wow. is that 90% of the Indian workers are not employed by the Sensex economy. They're either self-employed, small, medium type companies, street vendors, whatever, taxi driver. So the, the service economy. 
economy. So this is the, so therefore the benchmark of success is wrong because we are not measuring, uh, you know, per uh, per million what kind of job rate it is, job growth. We're not measuring the bottom of the pyramid in terms of economic consumption. Uh, they should measure consumption or buying power, which is not subsidized by the government. Because to say that everybody's going to have uh, these, these facilities, they'll have electricity, they'll have housing, they'll have food, but all of it subsidized or much subsidized is not really a fair measure of success. You right. cannot just go on carrying this heavy weight of hundreds of millions of people on your shoulder and become a Vishwa guru like that. You cannot do that. So right. the, the jobs problem is very serious. Uh, in the, and the other thing I want to mention is that as India is scaling, uh, skilling, upskilling for AI, they are, they are upskilling for very low level work. This is work, this data sciences kind of work is, is sort of like the outsourcing used to be. I mean, the, uh, the call center used to be that uh, and the BPO uh, economy, uh, which is not very long term sustainable. So there'll be a time for five years, maybe maximum 10 years where the kind of AI people India is training uh, will get work. And it will create a, a lot of uh, billions of dollars of wealth uh, for the middlemen who are outsourcing these people. They hire them for $10,000 a year and they rent it to the Americans for $30,000 a year. So it is Indian brains for rent. This is not creating made in India technology. It is Indian brains making Atman Nirbhar for the Americans. There it is making them, giving them intellectual property using Indian brains. You know, I, right. go to, I go to all kinds of places in the United States where cutting edge technology is happening, in, whether it's banks, whether it is defense and industry, whether it's health. And I find, I'm very impressed by how many Indians are working there in pretty important positions. But they are not doing it for India. The technology is not owned by India. Even the ones do, working in India, most of the patents in AI in India goes to uh, Microsoft India, Google India. It's the Americans sitting in India hiring Indian brains for their own benefit. So you see the future of jobs. They keep talking about that there'll be a lot of jobs created. It's these kind of jobs. It'll be jobs either working right. for some foreign guy or doing very low level work. Uh, the, the jobs that will be killed are the jobs that large majority of Indians depend on. So this is going to create havoc. And I'm not talking about a couple of generations. I'm talking about this decade. I'm saying that by the middle of this decade, by 2025, cracks will appear in the sovereignty, integrity, robustness of India's uh, Sharir, what I call the physical robustness of India, right. which is battleground one. And by, the, by 2030, it will become very clear that we are in trouble. One thing is, uh, it's not that this problem is unique to India. Even in the US, I think uh, one of the things that powered Biden and others, or even Bernie Sanders, uh, to pose a stiff, uh, stiff challenge is that the wealth is getting highly concentrated in a small group, yes. whereas the digital have-nots, even in the US, uh, I mean, you could say significant the number of them being Trump voters or blacks or uh, racial minorities, uh, they also seem to be left out. So it's yes. not uh, that uh, we, of course, are playing digital coolies to the American uh, uh, big tech. But even in America, the big tech seems to be bigger than uh, most people uh, <laughs> in, that, in their own country. And so, as you've seen in my book, I call this the return of the East India Company because right, the right. East India Company was bigger than the more powerful than the British government. 
and, and so some of these big tech, you know, they're approaching $2 trillion market cap, some of them, right. uh, between one and $2 trillion. It is huge. So, so right. you know, they can make or break, they can ban this guy, they, 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 they got power because they can scandalize, they got so much on you. They got so much on you. Uh, because every every facial rec- you know there are a few billion sensors uh, whether they are video sensors whether they are audio sensors whether they are biometric medical sensors whatever they are there are billions of sensors around the world and this big data is able to capture and the artificial intelligence is able to recognize build patterns so there is a there is an entire bio history of uh, uh, and where history of rajiv malhotra in which i don't even know i don't even know because I, I, I don't have a memory of everything I've written, everything I intended, what, where I was and all that. But these guys, the AI system never forgets. And so the, the ability of the big tech in America to uh, make or break American governments also there is definitely there. We are seeing the early stages of this coming out. Uh, and and the, the, unequal, the point you raised about uh, Americans also suffering uh, as have-nots, uh, and the concentration of power worsening is absolutely valid. It is absolutely valid. It's just that uh, the, the, the basic robustness of the United States institutions is far stronger than India. Uh, and, right. and, and, you know, one day, one day you should interview me on why I think America won't sink while India will. I, I would love to go into that because I have, I have okay. done a comparison on what is the robustness of America due to. Where does it come from? Where is the real resilience and strength that they keep taking all these blows, but you know the the, the country goes on uh, and just bounces back? And I'm not sure right. that India will bounce back to the same extent. Yeah, in fact, uh, there is a lovely table that you made where you have shown, uh, I think, on page 21, where you talked about the amount of data the big tech captures through various devices, web browsers, smartphones, smart homes wearables and implants, how much the degree of control you lose as you go up the scale and go up to implants. In a sense, they capture, they know you much better than you can ever know yourself. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, I can only know myself, con- what I've done consciously, but unconsciously, right. my heart is beating, my brains are shifting, what I'm unconsciously biased about, for, against, they're picking it up. And also my memory is vulnerable to forgetting with their memory, the machine never forgets. So the machines are in that sense, able to outdo, outwit, outsmart human beings in many, many faculties. And this is becoming dangerous. Right. The other thing you mentioned, I mean, in fact, you quoted uh, Soshana Zwoff and how actually uh, we, uh, we claim we have got something free, but what we have actually lost is uh, much, much more thing which we have not been able to value. That is a lot of our digital cells, our information about ourselves that everybody seems to know. And in respect for we all we get in return is some free email or some Google Maps and uh, for doing this. Uh, uh, can you expand on this? You know, how is it theft? You know, uh, in some way, so that our people can understand it. Yeah. So, so you know, Jaggi, this is a very important question. There is a there is a saying in this circle that I hang around in as part of this research, and what they say is, when the product is free, you are the product. <laughs> so you are being sold. You are being gamified. You are being played with. Uh, so okay. in a sense, in a sense, the you know something very interesting. I'll tell you. 
this recent thing about uh, you know these farmers uh, riots and uh, you know now it's clear that twitter and a lot of people had planned all this and done all this i i wish people would read this book and understand the depths rather than just looking at it as a symptom and reacting to the symptoms and blaming this person that person that kid that uh, who is doing all this just a tool Uh, yes. and and lot of her lot of her uh, twitter handle and other handles are done by other people there's other people who are managing all that there is a right. huge system behind it and you right. see this this system has been going on for quite a long time so the psychological hacking of uh, minds bec- yeah. uh, is based on how much data you are supplying and uh, and they are willing to give you things free in order to get all that data from you and you know don't trust them when they say whatsapp is end to end encrypted uh, gmail is not uh, uh, reading your mail point is this if they are reading your mail there is a technique called anonymizer anonymizer means that we will not mention j- j- your name jaggi but we'll say there is a person male he comes from a certain background certain socio economic lives in uh, in india this is his faith so they'll profile you and cl- collect all this data it may not have your name on it but the profile is being uh, understood they're reverse engineering how your mind works so this way they're able to put together a, partic- a particular community's behavior it's called swarm intelligence swarm like a swarm of bees or a swarm of uh, right. birds right. so right. you know the the imagine the farmers who are revolting are a swarm and so they have tens of thousands of phone calls going and somebody is able to listen and able to understand using natural language processing which is a part of ai uh, and and able to decode the mood the sentiment there is something called sentiment analysis in ai so they are able to decode are they getting angry less angry than yesterday or more angry are they happy are they sad are they jubilant are they in the mood to celebrate who, who is against whom is it the young people of a certain are a certain way is it that the women are versus men are a certain way so they are able to come up with a swarm de, de, uh, compartmentalize it into many categories of uh, people and able to figure out the mood the tendencies in real time now this is very dangerous because this means that the people who know all this can figure out what post should i put to make them angry what post should i do to get them upset at, at uh, get group a upset at group b what should i do to appease them what kind of fake news do i need what are they likely to click what are they likely to ignore so this kind of intelligence is so amazing no human being has ha- ever had this kind of intelligence about other people so this is the uh, the technical term for this is gamification of people you are right. uh, turning the people into game and you are right. you are making them move up and down like pawns in a game because you control their emotions and their psychology you figured out that jaggi wants likes jaggi wants more followers so if he does certain kind of good behavior we'll give him more of that so it will channel his behavior in that direction if we want to discourage his behavior we will make that post not so popular or we'll make it uh, even shadow ban him or something so they are modulating you and they are they are morphing your behavior according to their needs This This means that billions of people around the world are being kind of brainwashed and are being kind of in a in a way very silently and unconsciously they are being maneuvered psychologically in the direction that these people want. Now this is huge power. This is more power than with guns and all that because this is the power to break down countries. 
so let me ask you a more direct question in this. Do you think that this thing happens autonomously at multiple points? Or is there a puppeteer who th thinks I must pull all these strings at a certain time based on the knowledge that I already have? I mean, take the farmer protests as an example. Okay, you know that this is a nice way to destabilize a government and all that. But do you think that uh, this is happening because somebody or some group wants this to happen? Or is it because different actors, like say Twitter may be doing its own thing, Facebook may be doing its own thing, Google may be doing its own thing, and suddenly some uh, uh, social activist in America might say, okay, let's get, uh, uh, you know, uh, Greta Thornburg or somebody to say something about it. So the point is, is, this, is there a puppeteer at the end of it? Or is this that different people chime in at the, uh, their own inclination? Okay, this is a brilliant question. So this is exactly when I wrote Breaking India, I said foreign excesses. I said that uh, there are puppeteers and then in India, it looks like it's very spontaneous. This guy doesn't like that guy. And this guy wants to do some conversion and that guy wants to uh, do some Maoist terrorism, but actually foreign funding and strings being pulled and these people are getting legal coverage and they are getting training. All that is being masterminded. I, I, that was my thing. And it was not just speculation. I had gone undercover. I had gone to all these places and uh, built a huge database of information. In the last five years, I've been doing the same for artificial intelligence. I've been going to international nexuses, the uh, nexuses of the left, nexuses of the right. Uh, there, are, there are Chinese nexuses. There are a lot of American nexuses, European nexuses. So there are multiple nexuses. And this is what I'm calling Breaking India 2.0. Now, in this book, I did not want to give actual data, names and all that other than a few examples I've hinted at because I'm writing a second book where I want to expose more. But I want to not, not give too much publicly because it also control, it also restricts my future access because I, I, I'm not necessarily per personally going and doing all this. I have a lot of people working for me. And so I, I, I have built a map. Just like they are mapping India, they are mapping the Indian psychology, I'm also mapping them. And I have oh. not been able to get support from, uh, from institutions and authorities and uh, you know, powers to be in India to help me with this process. They, they, they never took me seriously. They just did not take me seriously until all these things started happening. And what has now happened is just the beginning. I will tell you that this kind of thing is going to happen every year and it will be ex escalating beyond India's control beyond the ability to control it because it's going to get worse. And the, the short answer to what you're saying is this is masterminded, but there is not one puppeteer. There are multiple. Sometimes, you know, what happens is there is a consortium of different vested interests to bring down the same fellow. So if you can, if, if many predators can kill this elephant, there is food for all of them. Maybe afterwards they'll fight each other also. Maybe afterwards, the, after they finished off the elephant, they'll also have to fight each other. That is often what predators do. So maybe afterwards, eventually, the, the, the Christian right and the Islamists and the leftists, they'll all fight each other also because they, they are. But for now, they have a, they have a very oh. massive terrain. And a huge opportunity, large number of people, lot of uh, resources, lot of strate strategic importance to the, the geography of India. So there's lots of people. So this is really, literally, this is Breaking India 2.0 working. And many of the Breaking India forces are the same ones who've now jumped to 2.0 because they got the AI and our people are just sitting there dumb. Our people are sitting there, leaders dumbfounded. They're asking me questions like, sir, I mean, our people are like village bumpkins. I mean, I'll tell you, 
are they are behaving like village bumpkins and they are supposed to be very smart people in very important offices so so and and whether it is foreign affairs people whether it's national defense people whether it is economists people that people haven't understood this game and so you are one of the few who's asking me these sharp questions and i can tell from our conversations privately in the last few days you've been very busy studying or what you are uh, this book and i'm very glad that you are doing this is a very big thing big favor for me which i'm grateful for because i want people like you to unpack this uh, you know i am a researcher but you can unpack it and bring it out to more people to understand so the 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 small chota mota game is going on at many levels a lot of people will get something out of it lot of intermediaries lot of zamindars in india who will get some funding they don't even know the big game some of them are playing it unconsciously out of ignorance some of them are really involved but at the higher level of that most of the very big players the top level players are sitting outside india that i do know because i i know who they are now when we talk about okay george soros is behind this uh, caa anti caa and anti 370 but no one went beneath the surface and say okay where where are the machineries where is his mechanism what is the method by which he is doing it after all if he announced publicly a billion dollars actually the figure is more the where my job is to go inside and figure out what is the mechanism what is right. the mechanism how is working what parts of it are in india what all have they infiltrated which indian institution and authorities have they infiltrated what part of it is outside what is their secret communication how are they operating that is what i have really done that is the real accomplishment and this book is sort of an opening if i right. if I, if the book if it gets enough audience if enough people read it it gets enough traction i'll be encouraged and i'll put out my next book which will give all lot of more lot more detail right. so right. the the question you are asking are very important and and i'm very glad that you are pushing so uh, one of the things you mentioned in the course of the last uh, introduction was uh, about oh they love our yoga this that and all that and in this context in the book in one of the areas you mentioned the relationship between hard power and soft power i mean uh, my own view i mean uh, often informed by what you write is uh, this you know that i think there is no point having soft power if you do not have hard power exactly don't you think soft power rides hard power yes absolutely uh, when uh, when uh, joseph nye in uh, kennedy school of uh, uh, government in uh, uh, you know harvard coined this term soft power he he was referring to united states having so much hard power uh, that in addition to the hard power pressure on the soviet union uh, the spread of american culture and values and music and all of that to win over america uh, russians and other eastern bloc countries would be very important and also in the what was called the third world at the time to win these people over with american soft power is very important at the time but this was because the hard power already existed and in my book i show how rome versus greece the the with rome bringing the hard power and greece bringing the soft power ultimately rome defeats greece the hard power defeats the soft power and there there is a greco roman culture uh, hy- uh, hybrid culture in which rome is taking over the greek culture so you got the culture but i got the hard power i'll end up having both and 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 the so the what i don't say openly but what i want you to know is the 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 suggestion i'm leaving is if india is trading on soft power and china is trading on hard power is it the greece and rome scenario is it that china will conquer india and take over the soft power that's right i mean you see unless we have hard power to defend right. ourselves nobody will take us seriously people will 
take our yoga and call it their own. Okay, come up with a different history. People are into vegetarianism. People are into animal rights. People are into, you know, all this business about environment and all that. So much of this about in the last 50 to 100 years came out of Indian thought. But it, and I'm writing a book called Digestion, the theory of digestion, how all this gets digested and the sources get forgotten. Indian culture is being digested into Western culture, which is not the same thing as soft power. Right. Uh, soft power thing. test would be soft power test would be if Biden administration would say I cannot blame India for lack of freedom and all that because you know my wife goes to uh, is a yoga uh, student all her life and her idea of freedom, her idea of feeling well and becoming a freer person is based on something that Mother India gave us. So how can we how can we be borrowing the technology of freedom, the te yogic freedom? from these people and at the same time saying that they don't have uh, religious freedom. Uh, the, if they change their policy, actual official policy towards India, that would be soft power because soft power has to have power in it. It cannot, otherwise it's just culture. I mean, we go out and we enjoy some food from various exotic countries, but we don't think that those guys have any power over us. Right, right. The uh, uh, related thing is, um, you know, how does a hard power like China exercise its own power over its own people through AI? Because uh, one thing is there is some kind of material uh, benefits. Uh, I mean, one would have thought, I mean, uh, the, the conventional wisdom is that uh, once you grow beyond a certain level of uh, affluence, uh, you start demanding political power, freedom, democracy, right to elect people and things like that. But China seems to have so far bypassed that need and it seems to be keeping its population satisfied and hooked on to some kind of material progress. Uh, has it done the hacking of its own people first? Because yes. uh, that's a very, uh, uh, is that what is happening there? Yes. So you see, the, what we trivialize as, okay, this is an autocracy and, uh, and a dictatorship and they are doing this, it will not work elsewhere. The point is they are, they are perfecting their algorithms. They are perfecting yeah. their gamification uh, on what are the human weaknesses, what are the human tendencies and how much, how much uh, uh, you have to assert yourself to get people in line, how much you can win them over. So all these algorithms are learning. And then these algorithms are being exported to African countries and in some ways to places like Pakistan. Pakistan is being gamified by China. China yeah. has a lot of knowledge about Pakistan. Pakistan, by the way, is already for practical purposes a Chinese colony. India should understand that. India should not think that there is any way we can convince Chinese to take our side on Kashmir and all that. There's just no way. China is so invested and the investment is paying off because if they want, if they ever need boots on the ground to fight India, it will not be Chinese people, it will be Pakistanis. It will be Pakistani terrorists or Pakistani military people or ISI. Those guys will do all the dirty work. So you see this business of hacking the mind starting with their own domestic uh, base as a captive like guinea pigs you are testing a new drug on some you've got to do a trial for drugs so you try it on in the old days they would try it on prisoners you know because uh, you can take risks with them so the this business of uh, hacking the minds with ai started with the muslim minority then it went to uh, hong kong 
where they did all this uh, with the, with the cameras and all this stuff. They figured out who are the leaders, where are they vulnerable, how to anticipate their next move, how to intervene. Now they are into foreign countries. So China is building. See, China is building its uh, AI machinery, AI-based control of human beings on a large scale in this manner. Chinese government is, and in the United States, you have both government. That is what Edward Ed, Snowden was uh, telling us about. But you also have the private sector. So in the United States, the these digital giants are their own, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, imperial powers it, uh, in a sense. And the CIA, the U.S. government, is also on its own. In many ways, Russia is doing this. Russia is actually Putin is very big on AI. Putin has made a lot of statements about the importance of AI. The reason Russia needs AI a lot more than many countries is because it has a small population. So it needs automation. It will not suffer unemployment because with only 100 million or so people and a vast terrain, they need robotics, they need drones, they need machines to do the work. So as there are two ways in which Russia will come out ahead of many one is global warming. When it uh, melts the snows in the Siberia, they'll have the largest terrain of fertile land, if you think about it, yeah. while right. many other countries will go under the water, under yes. the water because water level will rise. The point is that with the melting of the snow, melting of the ice, the polar ice, yes. Siberia will become the most large, lush uh, you know, place in the world for agriculture and so on. That is one way that they, they're likely to be help, helped. The second way is a very small population. And with the advent of AI, uh, you know, uh, overpopulation is going to be a liability. It's no uh, demographic dividend. It's a demographic nightmare that uh, uh, overpopulated countries have. So Russia will end up benefiting from that. They understand all this. Right. Uh, two, two questions. Uh, one related to China and Russia, which are both autocratic countries, but uh, uh, AI might actually help them continue remaining autocratic once they hack the minds of the people. In the case of America, which is still a democracy and much of Europe, uh, the uh, control seems to be exercised more by the tech or to some extent the um, security establishment. Yes. So where do you see um, genuine democracy free speech, free will, and all. you mentioned all that in your book. Uh, you're saying, where do you see it heading, uh, one from the authoritarian approach, where investment in AI actually helps them keep their own people docile and focused on minor pleasures, while the leadership does pretty much what it wants. And then the other side, which is a democracy, and uh, the infiltration into hacking of people's mind is far more subtle and people may not know much, but uh, this is that. So uh, do you see a parallel between both democracy and autocracy where AI can actually be used to achieve the same purpose? So you see, this is a very interesting question because I, one of my sequels, I'm writing several sequels, is on how India can, can basically turn the Vedic metaphysics, the Vedic social sciences, the Vedic mind sciences as an AI foundation. And not only, not only propel, the, propel the Vedic ideas and get a force multiplier, use AI to create a social awareness which is Vedic oriented rather than the global left. Right now, what has happened is the premises, the premises of human rights are global left. You know, when they say that you violated something and they will uh, ban you or whatever they'll do, it is their criteria. It is their criteria. It is not the criteria of a dharmic person saying, okay, according to the dharmic person, what he said was correct. You know, the criteria, the criteria that AI has to use in order to make value judgments have to be supplied by human beings. 
So human beings supply the criteria and these criteria tend to be Western universalism. So when, you know, when I did that book, uh, Being Different, and I defined the idea of Western universalism, now what has happened is Western universalism has become embedded in AI. And so now AI is the vehicle by which Western universalism is being propagated. But there's no reason why it could not be Vedic universalism. There's no reason why it could not be. And so our government could have a Vedic approach to AI. And I'm also convinced because I'm, I'm working on Sankhya, the idea of the ideas of Sankhya's idea theory of intelligence. There is a Sankhya theory of cognition. And there is a Kashmir Shaivism theory of cognition and uh, intelligence. And I'm working on how these can be the foundations for building artificial intelligence. Because after all, if artificial intelligence is built on the idea of intelligence that you want to mimic. So whatever is your theory of intelligence, you want to mimic that. And if, if we came up with, if we introduced our theory of intelligence as the premise, which is what I want to go towards, then we could create a new kind of AI. Our AI will benefit and also our civilization will benefit because we, the AI will be used to further our ideals, our ideals. So right. this question you're raising, very powerful question that uh, why, you know, this is another problem which we have with AI brought into India because the AI being brought into India by the corporate sector is basically biased with Western universalism. Right. You know, right. I'm, I'm, I'm withholding. It's like tip of the iceberg. I talk about even my book is a tip of the iceberg because uh, uh, 10% I'm telling you in this book, 90% I, I, I know I, I'm waiting for and I want to collaborate with people like you and I want to do a lot more. So yeah. the idea of how to how a civilizations, a civilization's basic premises, assumptions, templates, become the foundation invisible in the AI. AI pretends to be very universal and equal to everybody. But the, you can see from the results that uh, Twitter is producing that it uh, actually is certain ideological tilt in the algorithm. The algorithm has an ideological and metaphysical assumption built into it, which uh, even the average AI guy who's an AI coolie doing some techie work, he doesn't even know. He's got a job somewhere, some, you know, a lot of Indians working in AI don't understand that they are, they are helping a machine become more and more powerful. And this machine is not neutral. It is not yeah. neutral. It is not civilizationally neutral. It has some value system in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing is like, uh, uh, you make a difference between say intelligence and consciousness in one of your uh, things, right? So, um, and the other thing uh, is that in the uh, West, uh, they have reduced mind and body to just materials. I mean, this is something like, I think the Western science, with good reason, uh, tries to understand the whole by examining the parts and breaking it up further and further. So they have introduced this idea uh, across all societies to first break it up and then see how they can assemble it to their own this thing. Right. My, don't you think uh, that there is some kind of a, a problem here where uh, if you, uh, whereas the Indian mind tries to understand the whole in itself and how, sees how it is a part of everything else. Right. But here they are saying everything has to be broken down into its uh, sub parts and the sub parts become the real thing, not the whole. Yes, I mean, uh, this uh, metaphysics and the difference intelligence, consciousness, can you just expand on that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the sad things, uh, I have good friends in uh, AI and some Indian guys who are really 
popular people who write a lot about Indian science and all of that consciousness. And I don't want to name them because they're friends. But I, they, I think they're totally wrong because they've gone out to, too many times and said that since machines are not conscious, they can never replace humans. That's not yeah. true. Because, you it's know, not- a, a, a driverless car will replace the chauffeur, even though the driverless car is not conscious. But the point is it can drive and that's all that matters. I mean, nowadays they are doing facial recognition by computer better than human beings because fa- the computer can recognize you even when it's dark. Even if you're wearing glasses, not wearing glasses, it can recognize it's the same fellow. And c- computer is not conscious, but it can replace human beings doing it. Computers do fingerprint analysis when each time your thumb is used to open your uh, smartphone. And these old in the old days, there used to be people who would manually calculate the fingerprint. You know, they would look at fingerprint. Now machines do it in a split second. And so so without being conscious, machines can do all kinds of things that previously required uh, intelligence. So there is, a, there is an intelligence which doesn't have to be conscious. And, and uh, so, so that is one point I'm differentiating in this book. I'm, I'm glad you brought it out. I'm really making a difference between conscious and intelligence. These are two different things. And what we are talking about in the book is artificial intelligence. We are not claiming that those machines will become conscious. In science fictions, they sometimes talk about robots that are conscious and all that. So, you know, people dismiss the whole thing, then they dismiss AI also. I think that uh, unconscious, unconscious machines becoming super intelligent is the challenge. Unconscious machines becoming super intelligent. So that is that is one part. The second point you made... Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the second point you made is that biology, the Western idea of biology is a very mechanistic model. Biology is a machine. Uh, instead of running on silicon, it's these algorithms running on uh, organic material, uh, hydrocarbons and organic material and cells and all that, you know, which are basically carbon based. So the, 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 this idea of uh, intelligence running on a, a kind of uh, organic material, organic computer, if you will, uh, it gives uh, biology the ability to model an organ, whether it's the heart or lungs or a particular cell. They can build an build a algorithmic model of its behavior under various conditions, just like a computer scientist would build a model of a computer system. The biologists are able, the life sciences are able to do the same thing uh, for living systems. And so the success of this the success of it in treating diseases, in, in, in all kinds of medical breakthroughs, uh, in neuroscience, is what has propelled this uh, mechanistic model of biology for, forward. And then you have people like Elon Musk who are pioneering in the implant business where there will be silicon implants interacting and working with your biological machinery to give you a hybrid, a person who's kind of a hybrid. Initially, it will be for monitoring you Uh, They will say that we are just monitoring your heart, your brain. We are keeping track of you. We're making you healthy. Maybe somebody has got uh, PTSD because of the military and maybe we'll change his mind to be happy. Maybe somebody is bipolar, somebody is suicidal, somebody is about to be violent and we'll get an advanced notice and we'll change his thinking. So all these applications to get you get into your brain will be sold to the FDA and to the authorities for for legal clearance based on very good applications. 
I mean, right. it will say that, okay, instead of uh, 2 million people sitting in jail because otherwise they will be violent, isn't it more humane that we put some in implant in their head and we track them and we make sure that the right signal goes and the right hormones and all that. So now he can live a normal life, except when he tends to become violent, then we will, the machine will intervene automatically and uh, put him on the right track. It's more humane than keeping him in jail. So like this, arguments will be given. Uh, isn't it good that somebody who's mentally ill, suicidal, uh, you know, all these traumas he's having, we're going to put these implants and make him okay. So the, the society will say, yeah, this seems like it's very humane. Of course, there'll be trillions of dollars made. But once the systems are in your brain, once it is more acceptable to society, the next application will be entertainment. Now you'll be able to fantasize, you'll be able to go to a virtual holiday somewhere, uh, just push a button, maybe you buy for so many dollars a month, you buy some Amazon Prime or you buy Netflix or some kind of a streaming service and it'll give you so many times a week a sex it'll give you or so many times a week some fantasy with somebody and depending on the grade of uh, what, what level you bought, you will get more or less or different levels of quality. So this business of hacking your brain to solve medical problems, hacking your mind to give you emotion, to you know, emotional manipulation. That's where it will start. That's not where it will end. That's not where, so this is a, this is a very huge topic that society needs to think about. And, you know, policymakers need to think about. Uh, NGOs don't know this. Gurus don't know this. I'm surprised that the gurus are so ignorant. I mean, I've tried getting gurus on top uh, into this business. I've only succeeded with one Ramakrishna mission, uh, Swamiji in uh, New York. He uh, understood what I'm saying. He spent a lot of time discussing this with me. He read the book in detail and, and then he's participating. I'm trying to get more gurus interested. So far, they're either very lofty that uh, they have, they're dismissive or they know all about it and they don't need to listen to it. me as a regular fellow. Who am I to teach them anything? Uh, or they just plain old embarrassed, you know, but they are not engaging the issue. So right. this is the, the issue of uh, where we are going with AI vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, 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 the RV. The, the, one of the big things in this book I talk about is algorithm versus being. I mean, if you part one of the book is called algorithm versus being. We are algorithm to the extent we are mechanized system, predictable, and we can be managed that way. We are being to the extent we are, we are beyond algorithms. We are this living conscious being, and we are a spiritual entity. This is, I think, a, a, a battle at a very high level. That's right. So uh, to put it in a very simple terms, that today I can achieve a meditative stage, a stage or a high level of consciousness and super consciousness by meditating and dhyana and various other things. Tomorrow, an implant in my brain can, with uh, periodic releases of dopamine or serotonin, will achieve the same thing. Uh, is this what we are heading towards? Yeah, so that is what my book is concerned about, that uh, uh, this is what I call the battle for self. Uh, the, the yogic idea, the Vedic idea of self is adhyatmic. We go inside, we give a, do neti neti to all these physical things and mechanistic things and all these right. things which are prayas rather than shreyas. Uh, we, we give it up. That is our path. Now, the, yeah. the AI system wallas are saying that that will take too long. Maybe it will work. Maybe it won't. I'll give you this thing and it will uh, work for sure. We push a few buttons. 
uh, you just subscribe to my channel. I'll put this thing on you and you will be happier. You don't need to do all this uh, tapasya and yoga and meditation. You just get right. it. So the fact that the youth are going in that direction, which is very, which is true. You know, if you, in, when you interview people who are like under within the age of 15, they've been raised on this kind of a, a technology and they're very, uh, unlike people our generation, the people who are like 15 uh, or less, they think it is cool. They're saying, why, what is wrong? I mean, if they can make me happy, while it's happy. So, you know, you could have a generation of people that are really being turned into morons. That are really, it's not just psychological, emotional morons, but even hardware morons. Exactly. And so that's something to think about. Right. Uh, uh, one of your points in the battle for self you mentioned is uh, this particular phrase, uh, sentences. Liberalism is now at a new threshold of self-defeat. The outsourcing of gratifications to external technological agencies undermines the notions of self-individualism and free will. I mean, you said this in many ways, but um, uh, and I think you also mentioned you all know Harari in this uh, thing. He, in his one of his uh, more books, uh, recent books, he said, uh, "Mankind evolved." over centuries, but in future, mankind will develop through intelligent design. That is, you will have implants, bionic devices inside you and all that. So you become a superhuman, not through your own effort, but through some implants that get into you. So uh, coming back to the question of liberalism and that, can you expand on that? Yeah. See, liberalism is a product of humanism. So there was, before all this, there was this view that the God, it's a God-centric world. God makes the rules. God, we just obey God and it's all written in the Bible. And so right. uh, when that was discarded, the age of humanism said that we humans have the ability to think for ourselves. We can, uh, we can tell right from wrong. Uh, we can, uh, through science, we can discover things. Uh, through empirical evidence, we can even refute the Bible. It, it, the, the, the human being is, is endowed with the ability to figure things out. And maybe the Bible is wrong and maybe our science is right. So this whole science versus religion, it led to the victory of humanism means that the human being has this faculty to figure out, figure out truth. So the human quest for truth began. And this became the, the cornerstone of liberalism that this, this actually gives agency to the human being, the individual, the whole idea of individual freedom and free will became very important. God became kind of secondary or out the door. So this uh, rise of liberalism, the rise of the left, the rise of secularism and the rise of science, they all went hand in hand. Now what has happened is that science has reached the culmination in AI. And AI, AI is basically saying that, okay, uh, this machine can actually override your individualism, your free will. You don't really need your free will. Why do you need your free will? Uh, you know, Netflix will tell you what movie you should watch now. And some, uh, some drone from Amazon will bring you the meal that you ought to eat. So, so you see, we are going on autopilot, becoming morons and going on autopilot. We are being incentivized to do so. And we are atrophying our free will. So what we are, what is happening is we're becoming a bit like zombies. So this is in a sense defeating the very same free will and uh, individualism which created this technology. So the technology could, in a sense, outdo its own creators at some point in time. And therefore, therefore, the concern is when that happens, when that happens, we may be forced into depopulation, because what what we, what the haves will say is that a few of us elites, billionaire, trillionaire types 
we got all this machine to do all the work. Why do you need 8 billion human beings to run the planet? Maybe you need only 10% as many. Maybe you just need a few people to run the factories, run the farms. Why do you need 90% of the people? They create disease. They create filth. They are always having problems. They're creating global warming. If 90% of the people were not there, we would have a better planet. I mean, there would be some people taking that argument and saying this is, makes sense. So then the question is, if that makes sense, the, how do we depopulate in a humanitarian way, in a humane way? We don't want to go there, put them in gas chambers and kill them, but we want to cut down birth rate such that in two generations, the birth will be zeroed out and very few people will be left. That depopulation is itself another social crisis, another calamity, because you know, it's not going to happen voluntarily. It's not going to happen easily. And there will be all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of games going on. So that era, which is very futuristic, is, now, is beyond the, this decade, which is what I'm focusing on. But that part of the book is very futuristic, maybe another 25, 50 years, but not, I'm not saying next century. I'm certainly saying by the middle of this century, that will be probably an era when, when depopulation will be on the table as a serious topic of conversation. Right. Uh, isn't it quite equally possible that uh, today the planet and the kind of wealth available and the kind of technologies available, it's actually possible to feed, say, nine or seven billion people or eight billion people more or less for uh, free. I mean, you need some basic diet, you need some basic work and things like that. All that can be manufactured with the help of technology and other things. So you can give you something like a universal basic in income. You do what you want with it. And you will have, a, if you want a Mandrega job or you for that matter, I will tell you to do some social work here and there. So uh, we'll run the world. You guys just make sure that you get enough to eat and have a picnic once in a while. That's fine. So why uh, they may not think they'll depopulate, but they will basically say that the population can be taken care of with what is free. Yeah. So that, that scenario is what I call uh, human 2.0 versus old, old human. The old human is people like us, people like you and me. Uh, and the human 2.0 will be the guy who will live for 200 years. He'll have all these uh, very expensive, you know, this medical breakthrough that U.S. keeps making is remarkable. But these, this kind of medical stuff costs a lot of money. So either you have socialized medicine like in some European countries because they're rich and they can afford it, or you have this insurance nightmare and crisis in the United States. So the, assume that this trend will continue. There will always be new latest break, medical stuff, bionic stuff, AI-based stuff, but these things will cost money and the rich people will want it. They will want to live longer. They will want to grow artificial organs. They will want to enhance their brains and whatever and, and their sensory experiences. So the, the fact that they can do all this doesn't mean that it will be scaled for the ordinary people. Ordinary people will be kept at human 1.0 and said, okay, now you can be, you, you'll be given a basic survival lifestyle and some fun and you can wear these augmented goggles and enjoy life and just stay out of trouble. And we'll make sure you get enough dopamine and you stay out of trouble. We'll monitor you so you don't turn violent. So you can say, you can imagine that maybe a small percent of the people will become human 2.0 and the large percent of the population will not be depopulated, but they'll become human. They'll be human 1.0. You can do that. And then maybe they'll be sort of like pets. You know, they'll be like nice guys, nice people to have around. They're kind of cute fellows. And, uh, you know, so the question is, what will the human 2.0 need out of them? Uh, is it purely compassion? Like we have compassion for animal rights. 
So there will be human 2.0 people uh, who will say, let's have ri- human rights for the 1.0 because they're nice guys. We don't want guilt. And our forefathers were like that only. Just like we say our, our, our ancestors were animals. I mean, we evolved out of monkeys and whatnot or different animals. So the, I don't know what the relationship, what will be the posture of the human 2.0 towards the human 1.0. And if the human 1.0 has demo- democratic voting rights, they will outnumber. So this is yeah. another thing to think about that if the if a large number of people who are marginally uh, useful and Harari calls them useless people. OK, uh, if there's a large number of useless people uh, who are sort of the, the majority of the population and we the suppose the superior people are keeping them around, keeping them in business and for very little money, we can, they can manage and have a good time. The point is, should they have voting rights? Because if they have voting rights, then, you know, then they can outvote us. They can take over and make laws against us. They can tax us and do all sorts of things to us. So I think this tension between human 2.0 and human 1.0 is bound to happen. What will be the outcome, whether it's a depopulation or whether those human 1.0 will no longer have voting rights, that I can't tell. But one thing, if human 1.0 has been uh, hacked by human 2.0 that runs uh, AI and all the technologies, why would human 1.0 actually vote against human 2.0? Yeah, so it could be a sham democracy. It okay, could also, yeah. We could also question the future of democracy. And, and, and this is being right. done uh, because democracy assumes individual freedom. It, and and it, to the extent that AI is able to hack into your brain and make you do things the way they, it wants, uh, you know, like Putin supposedly, you know, got into the U.S. elections and and all this uh, Cambridge Analytica, uh, they shut it down, but they were doing this. Even in India, you know, Cambridge Analytica had India as a client. They had right. uh, they had political clientele in India to do this hacking right. also, but then they got shut right. down. So, right. uh, you know, where this uh, use of hacking the mind will will lead democracies to, I don't know. Uh, 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 but certainly dictatorships use this as a tool. Dictatorship for them, it is a big, uh, so, you know, when people were saying that freedom and democracy will take over dictatorships, I'm not sure with AI whether whether that ju- the jury is still out on that because the dictatorship people have got a new lease on life because they got a powerful tool now. That's right. Correct. Yeah. Uh, the uh, last two or three questions. One thing is you ra- you raise such important issues on the basics of the human uh, uh, self, uh, ethical ways of using uh, AI and other things. But why is it that uh, very few people understand these issues? And it's not even a topic for discussion, even among the uh, most intellectual of people. Uh, I mean, it's not even being discussed. I mean, maybe in a very small group, it is being discussed. But most nations are not discussing it. And most, uh, certainly in India, I've never had a discussion with anyone on uh, the impact that AI will have on us, not just AI and all the recombinant technologies that enable it, whether it's uh, machine learning or uh, uh, quantum computing or the sharp drop in, uh, you know, uh, storage capacities, which allows you to store billions and trillions and trillions of uh, bytes of data, uh, that kind of thing. All this combination of these technologies is actually making uh, AI so powerful but we have not had any discussion on how this needs to be channeled, regulated, uh, used, not used, abused. You know, why is it so? 
This is a very troubling thing and you, I'm glad you raised it. The technology and the technocrats and the capitalists in control of it are way ahead. They are generation ahead of the masses, you know, and that's why the modernization of the masses is something vulnerable that people are vulnerable to. Now, I'm finding that in the U.S., such conversations are beginning to happen uh, recently with Edward Snowden started it and then a few people have quit uh, Google and a few people have quit uh, Facebook and started revolting against it and leaking out stuff. Uh, one, uh, uh, you know, Google hired, uh, created a department called uh, AI bias uh, because uh, there was enough complaint that blacks said that uh, you are biased against blacks because the machine learning, the premises are white oriented uh, and, and feminists said that you are gender biased. So you see these groups picked up the AI uh, th ideas and they hacked enough into it and they had enough insiders in these companies to come out and blow the whistle. Nobody right. has come out and said there is a Hindu bias in this right. AI. There is Vedic bias. There is all Western universalism. Nobody, nobody, there are so many Indians in AI, but nobody had the, had the courage, the, the, the imagination to connect the dots. I'm connecting the dots. They are seeing these dots every day. A lot of the people who are great in AI are also Sanskrit scholars. A lot of Indians who are, you know, Brahmin Sanskrit scholars and very knowledgeable and all working in AI, but they have not written this book. I'm writing this book. So this, this has not happened in the Indian scene so far. It's only beginning to happen in the American scene right now. And it will pick up. It will pick up. It's very interesting. I'm writing for Indians, but I'm getting so many more inquiries from Westerners wanting to uh, discuss this. And I'm saying, okay, I'll do that later. But I first want to warn Indians. I first want. Now in India, the literary festivals haven't featured this. Do you know, I my book has been sent by my publicist to the Hindu, no interest, Times of India, no interest, uh, Republic, no interest, in discussing with me, uh, the news laundry, the print, the wire, all these kind of people, my, my uh, uh, publicist has sent it to them. Either they think it is all science fiction or it is some conspiracy wala or there is this, this is some Hindu right wing, Hindutva fellow, Saffron fellow, and we don't want him. I mean, they just haven't had the brains. They maybe they cannot read for themselves. But I must say, I must say that uh, the inability of the Indian intellectuals to understand this, even when it's offered to them on a silver platter, like I'm doing with my book, is quite disgusting. And you know, you would expect some of them, like government people in ministries, who where they, this is being affected, you would expect that they would get a bunch of copies and give it to all these, all their top people and say, bring this fellow to come and do a Zoom with us and teach us all this stuff. You would think that the kind of conversation you and I are having, every ministry in India would want to have, the IS people would want to have, the, the technology people, the military people, all of them would want to have it with their senior thinkers. You would think that. I've been working on it for a very long time. And let me tell you, my first choice was not writing this book publicly. My first choice was being a, a resource available for people who were really serious and give them behind the scenes education and give them a head start over the rest of the world, maybe a year head start over the rest of the world by giving this knowledge to them. I'm discouraged because I feel that people don't want to get out of their comfort zone. People want to protect themselves and they are into this career and they don't want something disrupted. And there is this outsider. You don't know. You don't fully trust him. What might he say? Uh, the, the people in the mainstream media don't want to disrupt their position of authority. The people in TV want to look more very smart and uh, they can't handle, you know, an hour long, very detailed discussion, which requires attention span, but which has got something very important about it. They can't. Literary festivals, no interest. 
whether it is Jaipur Literary Festival, whether it is some the Goa Literary Festival, this India Foundation have all these guys, no interest. So whether it is left wing, right wing, India is dumb. India is really behind in all this. And I really worry about it. Yeah. So tell me, um, uh, isn't it uh, maybe, uh, I, I mean, I can, I don't think that all the intelligent people who get into the IAS and are now very top level secretaries or whatever heads of this and that, uh, they are not really that dumb. They can't understand what the issues you're at. My guess is that uh, many of them have put self-interest above national interest because yes. Because foreign powers have taken all their sons and daughters and given them placements in Harvard and uh, various places. So as a result, uh, and I mean, there have been found sponsors, this, that, whatever they need to do in order to get into an Ivy League institution. So in fact, there is no bureaucrat almost whose uh, son is or daughter is not studying abroad. Almost. So in this kind of a compromise situation, even if they knew that they have to take a tough line on Google or Facebook or whatever, how are they ever going to do that? Because your own personal interests predominate. Absolutely. You know, you know, it's very strange. I read all the reports on AI that have come out of India. Niti Aayog's report like almost like as if Google authored it for them. The future of AI, what it should be, what should be the strategy. And then Niti Aayog did this thing called RAISE, R-A-I-S-E, 2020, uh, about six, six, seven months ago. And uh, I was not even invited as a speaker. And I am writing a book on this. So I wrote to these people, giving them an advanced copy saying I ought to be invited. And, you know, there was no interest from them. Finally, someone told me that the vice chairman of Niti Aayog is an old St. Stephen's guy and he's a friend of yours. So you know him also. So I called him and uh, he says, ha, 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 uh, man, I'm not AI guy. I'm an economist. So I don't know much about these, but I will, uh, I will ask them to invite you. So he wrote a nice letter to the chairman, which is sweet of him, saying that uh, he's a nice guy. He's my former classmate. So you should accommodate him. So they gave me a chota mota role, more like uh-huh. a favor to me, not based uh-huh. on the merit of my book. So this is kind of ridiculous. And, and so you wonder now when, who are the people who came, who are the people celebrated as the big speakers, big thinkers, they were these Google type people. They were these, these kind of international elite. So you could tell those guys calling the shots, those guys calling the shots and our people, I don't want to accuse them that they've been sold out or in whatever way, maybe they are ideologically sold out. Maybe they are financially sold out. I do know that a large percent of these people, they have their son or daughter or nephew or somebody in the U S uh, you know, the, with some uh, financial aid from the government. It is not, well, it is not uh, necessarily a, a businessman with a lot of money who can t- uh, pay all these high tuitions. Uh, a friend of mine is uh, on the admissions and financial aid committee in uh, Yale. Uh, and he was telling me that a very large percent of the, uh, the money <laughs> is given to uh, people who's, who are high potential because of family. Uh, this is true of uh, various countries, even Africa, Middle East, yeah, India. Right. They, right. They'll take somebody who's a government official, son, some general son, somebody's son, somebody who's got a high potential, he's a politician, he's coming up. So, you know, they, they rank, they, they have their own machine learning algorithm of rating people in terms of what's the probability that the guy could be useful in the next five, 10 years. So this is a so, game. And, you know, yes, our, our, so India is kind of neo-colonized. And the Aam Aadmi should know these things. You know, if you think That's about right. it, whatever I've told you about today is exactly what the so-called left ideals are supposed to be. Ideologically, yeah. 
the left is right. supposed to be championing the, this. I, I should be a hero of the left only. Because, but the left right. are such budu people, such dull people. They, 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 they haven't got the brains to think of all this. Uh, right. uh, you know, they classify me as a right wing. Actually, I'm neither left nor right. I'm just pro-India. I'm just pro right. the country. I don't care whether it's left, right, what party it is. I just want to make sure that the my fellow Bharatiyas are okay. That's all I care about. And, right. and, and uh, so you are absolutely right. The elite, the ruling elite have probably compromised in, are probably compromised. It's not that they're not too smart. Or they're, they're probably smart enough, but they're compromised. Uh, you talked about Litfest. Actually, I've been to at least five or seven of them in the last uh, two, three years. That is before COVID. And almost all of them are sponsored by either Facebook or Google or uh, Amazon. Something like that. You know, so if, if the, those have been designated as uh, problematic companies in your book, I don't think you will get uh, any liberal invites too easily. Of course, you'll get them, but this is the you'll get you'll get to talk about something else, maybe some uh, some some other thing which is not material. Anyway, so the last question: How much time do you really think India has? If today suppose uh, you were to be given fair amount of freedom to say, let's work out how we need to do AI in India. How much, assuming the government is willing to listen, how many years do you think uh, we can actually be able to hold our own against China and America? See, I feel that if dramatically changed policies and actions are not put in place by the end of 2021. That is why for this year, I'm doing nothing else. I'm just trying to focus on this kind of mobilization. This is my personal campaign. Uh, this is a last ditch effort. If substantial programs, completely out of the box thinking are not put in place during this year, India will not survive beyond 2030. And by 2025, the cracks will be obvious because a combination of external pressures with the China, Pakistan acting together with this new technology and China is ahead in quantum computing by about 10 years, a combination of breaking India forces 2.0, which are also the strings are being pulled from various places, the puppeteers, as you said, multiple of them, that with uh, the, the external threats and the internal threats working together, the overpopulation, underemployment, the schism between haves and have nots worsening, uh, India will not be able to survive. And the political elite more concerned about the next election, how to bring this coalition down and how to throw that guy in jail. And this guy is a crook and uh, this guy should have FIR. All the, all the social media wallahs going running after that. And, and you know, you might have noticed that in the last one or two years, I kind of backed out of that a little bit. Even though my followers pressured me to go get involved here, there, and, and some of my people who are handling my accounts, they put that stuff out. But as far as I'm concerned, I focused entirely on this. In 2019, this book would have come out in 2019. Uh, there were a few things I wanted to do a little differently. And then the COVID started it about a year ago. So this got delayed a year. But I wanted to get this out a while back and change the discourse for India. I think India is almost at a point of no return. It is, but right now it has, to, it has no, no time, no luxury left to sort of waste time. Uh, if India really acted uh, very swiftly, uh, we should put together something on the scale of Baba Atomic Research for nuclear energy, something on the scale of ISRO uh, uh, for space. And it should be brilliant people on top with many backgrounds working, left alone, not headquartered in Delhi somewhere else. 
so that the polit- uh, the Delhi elites are not messing with it, uh, and they should be given ambitious, aggress- aggressive, uh, uh, you know, uh, goals, uh, uh, and bring this uh, Atma Nirbhar into technology, R and D, patents, know-how, and not just manufacturing using licensed technology. Right now, Atma Nirbhar is all bringing in. Now we are going to make uh, electric cars. The, the the internal combustion engine, which is the old technology, is all made in India. We don't need to import anything because uh, the five billion, four or five billion workers in the automobile industry making parts and all that will lose jobs because the old old tech, old auto industry will be finished. And the new yes. auto industry, which is on electric vehicles, the brains of, I mean, the engine of that is a battery. And the battery is lithium-ion technology. 50% of the world's supply of lithium is Chinese. Controls, they, they control that. Most of the patents to be licensed are Chinese patents. And so, you know, we are, we are actually doing a make in China. Uh, we, we, will, we will make the car and all that, but uh, the critical element of that will be imported from China. So how do we leapfrog ahead of that? We, need, we are putting money right now. We are putting money for sure into lithium uh, R&D, but it is, not, it is very little. A very small amount of uh, Indian money match, trying to match the huge amount of money uh, that other countries have. If you look at uh, uh, the, the international studies, international reports on uh, AI patents and AI investments and AI revenues from industries, India is in the, top, in the 2% range. China and US are like together 70-75% of the whole world, the, the two of them. And then the others are there. India is nowhere. So to catch up is not an easy thing to do. And I've been, I've been ever since the current government got in power, I've been trying to get in, get myself hurt. I do not want a job. I do not want an appointment. I don't want to be in the Raja Sabha. I just want an audience that takes my knowledge seriously. And they give me, give me some, some vehicle, maybe one secretary in a chota office somewhere where I can at least go and do seminars. I can, I can influence people. Uh, but the, I, the ability that they, they, they would, Listen to me, praise me, give me nice khanavana, and pray, tell me, yeah, everything great, Yevo, and just I'm gone and nothing happens. No follow-up. So this is a kind of an inertia with the IS, with the bureaucrats. Right, right. I, uh, that's a tragedy. Um, uh, uh, one last question. I mean, is Europe in the same uh, problem or, I mean, say, the fight is between America and the China and AI. Is Europe doing any better? Europe, Germany, France are doing good. You know, the Raphael jet, uh, why we India succeed, uh, selected it is uh, the, the, the AI in that is like 50 pilots are looking, tracking many enemy planes, many enemy planes and many missiles, all simultaneously being able to calculate what is the optimum use of our resource, which way to go, which a human pilot would not be able to do. And you cannot accommodate 50 pilots in the plane. So this uh, multiplier of the brain of a, of a pilot is, is, an, is AI. So you see the, the French are good at that. Germans have been good at that. Uh, Israel is good. Uh, much of the avionics uh, we get is from Israel. So J- Japan is good in this. So there's, there's these other countries, but still the dominant ones are US and China. And these other countries are sort of the second tier and India is below that. Right. So the Abrahamics and uh, Chinese have between them completely hacked uh, Africa. Uh, do you yes. fear that India's <laughs> fate is similar? 
so you know india is too large uh, too large to be just uh, you, an elephant cannot be sort of swallowed in one piece that is why the breaking india forces have always been there and that is why the strategies have been region at a time china has got its eyes on the mountains and the rivers river water and all that area those areas and you know uh, the the christians have got their locations where they are doing well the muslims got theirs the maoists have got their regions india is kind of a geographical map of india is a map of if you do color coded map it's a which which breaking india force is strong where you know it's a very tragic state that map on the cover of my bi book it's changed that map was 10 years ago now you'll have to put in ai into it now what i'm not disclosing i do i do want i do want to say just a little bit before we conclude i have uncovered some very wealthy people who have made investments in india multiple investments uh, and these people are definitely in this uh, global left ideological left anti caa anti 370 uh, funding these people who are uh, on this farmer uh, you know farmer riot and all that these guys are all when you look enough they are all there but they got the money that and under social justice that's a very suspicious term wherever in india they're teaching you social justice you should look and you will find there are these kind of people now the latest thing is rather than calling it human rights because indians are very suspicious now they're calling it social justice and so you know social justice sounds so nice you know so this social justice people have started some ngos in india and for some of them i know this guy has got 10 of them some of them have invested in technology companies including ai technology companies as venture capitalists to just keep an eye open to capture some minds win over some people because they got so much money to throw around so if they if they have a portfolio of uh, 25 30 billion dollars in india and their net worth is in the billions it's not a big deal so some of these things have started some of them are directly from us some of them are directly from china but some of them are through singapore so you know for example alibaba owns a good chunk of a paytm but it is not classified as a chinese it is classified as a singapore investment because alibaba has got a singapore uh, subsidiary through which they make these investment some of them are going through uae some of them are going through mauritius so india india doesn't have this kind of thinking going on uh, in india needs a not just one or two five fellows doing this india needs a pretty serious think tank right right and i think uh, we know who should be in it so rajiv thank you for giving us so much time and i hope uh, we get to continue this conversation on some of the other aspects that we could not really touch upon today uh, thank you rajiv for this wonderful book i will uh, not only be putting out this video but i will also uh, be uh, reviewing it shortly in swarajya and probably elsewhere thank you very much Thank you so much Jaggi uh, you've been a good friend you are one of the very few media persons from the old mainstream media now in in the new cutting edge media that i can uh, confidently say is uh, is an honest person uh, has a good heart has a good brain uh, and and i'm honored to call you a friend and and uh, may our friendship continue and flourish even further and uh, wishing you all the best in your health life and career and namaste to you thank you thank you thank you very much thank you